Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. 25 years ago this month, back in February 1992, Wayne's World was first released. And if that makes you feel old, well, me too. In order to celebrate this landmark anniversary, the movie is being re-released in theatres on February 7th and 8th. To get in on the festivities, we decided to pair Penelope Spheris, the director of Wayne's World, as well as the seminal decline of Western civilization punk documentaries, with Jeannie Finley, a regular TalkHouse film contributor who is not only a big fan of Spheris' work, but herself also an excellent maker of music documentaries, such as Orion, The Man Who Would Be King, and The Great Hip Hop Hoax. What you're about to hear is actually the second attempt at a conversation between these two. As when Penelope found out that Jeannie's sensibilities aligned so closely with hers, she asked for another 24 hours to check out a bunch of her work. A wise decision indeed, as Spheris and Finley really clicked as they got into a load of different topics. Wayne's World, of course, from the shock of being an indie director making a big studio movie for the first time, how the film changed karaoke forever, and why she hasn't watched it since its initial release but also getting Ozzy Osbourne to make Eggs and Decline Part 2, her accidental career as a studio comedy director, sexism in the industry, backstabbing in the doc world, IMDb errors, the two mysterious documentary projects she's working on, and exactly what she thought of Donald Trump when he made a cameo in Little Rascals. It's a real thrill to be able to talk to you. I'm so happy that the TalkHouse were able to set this up um, because I've watched your films for years and um, I can't believe that it's, is it 25 years since Wayne's World? That just seems unreal. Yeah, we released it 25 years ago on February uh, 13th. It was a Friday the 13th and everybody thought it was going to be unlucky, but it wasn't. Oh my goodness! Um, and is it what's it like, sort of coming back to look at the film again after it doesn't feel like it's that long? It still feels fresh. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, the fact, for me, <laughs> thank you. But the fact of the matter is, for for me, the last time I saw the film was 1992. What you've not watched it again since then? Correct. Wow! Is that something usual with your films that you'll just watch them once? Yes. I don't. I don't want to see them. Yeah. Oh wow! Can you tell me a bit more about that? Why you just they're done and then? Well, you I just feel them? like I, you know, I did that and now I'm moving on. And you know, if I ever like, for example, when I released the Decline of Western Civilization uh, trilogy on uh, the box set uh, last year, I was forced to watch the movies. Um, just so we could, you know, get, you know, do the timing and get the audio r- restored and all that. And um, man, it was brutal. I hated it. Really? Um, I mean, I love the, I love the films, but um, I only in my life like to be in the now and never in the past, and yeah. maybe a little bit of the future, but mostly just the now. <laughs> So this, is this a bit of a strange thing then, promoting something from so long ago? Yeah, I mean, I've got a lot of specific memories about it. So, you know, when when people ask me, you know, what it was like making the film and how, how shocked we were when it was so 
successful and all that, I mean, I can certainly uh, speak to that. But as far as watching the, I haven't seen Wayne's World in 25 years. Um, and I wouldn't want to, you know. I mean, I love the film, just like I love the Decline movies. But um, I kind of feel like it, I can't watch it, you know, because I'm I'm looking at like what I would have done different or, you know, why is that drape that color? And you know what I mean? It's all yeah. technical. Yeah. So what point in your career did Wayne's World sort of come? Like, what had you been doing prior to that? Was this your biggest film? <clears throat> well, I, um, I had done six films before Wayne's World. Wayne's World was l- lucky or unlucky number seven, depending on the way you think about it. It was lucky in that it was my first studio movie. I got to be in the director's guild. I got to be the Academy of Motion Pictures. I got to be really rich. You know, that's one <laughs> aspect of it. The, <laughs> the other aspect is I could never, in, in the studio system, do anything but comedies, you know. Right. And, uh, so that's why I finally just took that money, and, you know, and then I was able to make Decline Part Three using my own money because nobody would finance it, you know. So what yeah. was it, what was that shift like um, going from sort of being a independent filmmaker to making the studio film? Can you, can you tell me what your memories are from like the first few days of being on set? What that was like? Well, I can tell you that the fact that they were having a driver pick me up to take me to the set was probably. Uh, you know, uh, one of the, the main uh, differences. And then, uh, <laughs> and then as opposed to when I was shooting Suburbia and I was so tired driving home that I drove off the freeway, you know. <clears throat> but, um, oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess they're a, bit of, they're a bit of a shift. Um, uh, I, I watched Suburbia and um, how, how many years before you made Wayne's World was Suburbia? I shot Suburbia in... 83, I think, 82, 83, something like that. And then so Wayne's World was 92, uh, you know, like uh, 10, 11 years, something like that. So from a Roger Corman <laughs> produced film to the dealing yeah. with, uh, uh, it's a Lord Michaels film, isn't it, Wayne, Wayne's right. World? Right, And, um, and uh, the big egos of uh, comics, well, I'm assuming the big egos of... Well, of every, the, every part of the, of the film business. Every part of the film business has big egos. It's like, you know, you almost have, that's like one of the prerequisites, unfortunately. And it's not something, it's not a, a um, personality trait that I admire, mind you, unless it's big ego like Orion in your movie. That's cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but studio executive big ego ain't cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. And was it, was it a fun shoot? What was, tell me about the shoot. What was it like? Well, it was, um, well, the one thing I was going to say also about how different it was is when I, when we actually got to the set the first day, I was thinking that the driver took me to the wrong movie because uh, I never had seen so many trucks and trailers and people before uh, in one place to make a movie, you know, because when I'd ever made a movie before that, it would be like, you know, two, three trucks and a couple people. And now it's a hundred person crew and 25 trucks. And it's like, dude, you took me to the wrong place. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they must be shooting Batman here. Um, wow. But and it, did that take it, a that while was, to, 
Sorry, carry on. Yeah, did it take a while to adapt? Maybe you were going to say... To sort of, like, get used to that, yeah, because it's a bit of a, wow, all these people are looking to me to uh, pull this thing off. Right. Well, I'm an oldest child, and I'm kind of used to um, having to be in charge of the room, so it was just a bigger room, you know what I mean? Right. Um, But it, it, it was okay. I had... It's a lot of responsibility, especially when you're dealing with a couple of actors that are wanting to shoot things different ways, you know, just to make sure we covered it and got the best funny out of it, you know. So, yeah, so it, it have... was... Uh-huh. Yeah, no, sorry, carry on. I keep interrupting. No, I don't even know what the hell I was going <laughs> to say. Go ahead. No, I was just, I mean, was it, uh, was it smooth or was there sort of uh, creative... Uh, uh, contretons over who got to shoot the scene whichever whichever way no it was um i always accommodated uh the guys you know because uh, uh, mike and dana because i don't know i had worked with a lot of comedians before them you know i worked with richard Pryor and lily tomlin and danny devito and uh albert brooks so i kind of knew the comedic beat thing you know like you gotta just let them spin it you know you gotta let them have their their space and I always tried to shoot um, whatever they suggested, but I knew when I got in the editing room that I would have what I thought might work the best. And, you know, it wasn't always me that had the best ideas. Uh, We all contributed, you know. And tell me about the... um that scene in the in the car with Bohemian Rhapsody, I think that's sort of changed karaoke forever. Like, I don't know <laughs> how I've been to a karaoke and that song comes on, and we always recreate um, <laughs> Wayne's World. It has well, to Well, my God, let's just put it this way. If there's one thing I've done in life, then thank God I changed karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> I never looked at it that way before, but... Thank you, Jeannie. Uh, uh, well, but that's uh, like the touch point for that song. Whenever you hear it, you think Wayne. I know, I know. You know this, uh, this Freddie Mercury. Uh, exactly, and and the the trippy thing is that um, when they started up this Wayne's World twenty uh, fifth anniversary celebration thing at Paramount, Aurora, Illinois, heard about it, and that's where theoretically Wayne's World is set. Although we shot it in Los Angeles. And they were going to do a one-month celebration of the film. And now they've changed it into a six-month celebration, which I don't know how the hell you do that. But wow. then, at the, I know, at the end of it, which I'm going to go to because it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience, they're going to do a, a, try and break the world record for the largest number of people headbanging to Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, so, <laughs> I know. I mean, uh, <laughs> and then I also heard I also heard they built a uh, Stan Makita's Donuts at the Los Angeles Sports Arena. Um, actually, it was a link sent to me by my daughter that I didn't open in the middle of the night because I thought it would give me nightmares. Hold on, yeah, <laughs> uh, I <laughs> I know it's crazy, but um, Anyway, there's all this celebrating going on, and I and I hope people do have fun with it. You know, I mean, the fact of the matter is, times are a little more depressing now than they were back then. You know, and people need a little bit of a lift. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's partly the. I my office is in a cinema, and um, it's packed out every day at the moment with. Um, older ladies and gentlemen lining up to watch uh, La La Land and one of them stopped oh, me and she cool. said 
Well, she sort of said, it's amazing. Everyone wants a bit of L.A. sunshine in these depressing times. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's great. But I was queuing up for Manchester by the Sea. I was like, I'm here for the misery. I want, I want the misery. <laughs> oh, that's my girl. Yeah. <laughs> well, Stay I'm, depressed. Yeah, there's only one way to go when you're so down. Yeah. Well, I've got to say this. There's a real pleasure, I think, to be had sitting alone in a cinema surrounded by strangers crying. I think that that is a real <laughs> For me, that's a real pleasure to be had. <laughs> that's hilarious. But yeah. I don't know. It was pretty interesting thinking about the affection that you had for music fans. It's It seems like in Wayne's World, but also in the Decline series, that there's a true affection for the people. Is that? Am I picking up on that right? It feels well, like you really so. love Yeah, you you are picking up on it right, and I think it 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 came from a. Um, I mean, I think I think it's a smart observation on your part, by the way. But I think if I had to just on the spot interpret it, uh, it came from the fact that when I was growing up, I had a difficult childhood, as many of us did. And music was my safe haven. You know, uh, I would I would listen to rock and roll. And as it, time progressed, you know, I, I would also I would listen to more and more hard-edged rock and roll um, to the point where you know I ended up with Slayer, you know what I mean, <laughs> and Pantera. <laughs> um, I don't know how you get any more hard-edged than that, but yeah, I think. It oh, just that's come- interesting. Yeah, because uh, I wondered whether you were an insider or on the outside when you were making the decline series, because it felt like you were in there with them. Yeah. I mean, most of the people in the first decline were my friends before I even thought to make the movie. And, uh, so I, I did know them. I mean, Darby was my friend and Claude and uh, Claude Bessie and, um, Nicole Panter. I mean, we were all friends back then, and I I was just going to the clubs like every other person who loved punk rock back in the days. And then I thought, you know, this this shit's trippy. I think I'm going to make a movie about it, and that was the decline. I never thought it was going to be, you know, thought of as a as a classic, you know, or or it got it just got inducted into the Library of Congress Nash, uh, National Film Registry. Um, for wow. this year I know uh, who, who would ever think you know <laughs> well it feels like a time capsule when you're watching it but also so edgy there's some points where in the first decline film where there's a there's a girl with dark hair and she's sort of grappling and trying to get on the stage she's pulling up the the guy yeah, on stage leaving and kicks her ass yeah I remember that yeah it's really it's genuinely edgy it feels sort well, of like, I thought wow. about that. I thought about your style of filmmaking when I watched your movies and my style of filmmaking and well I should say with the documentaries, okay. You have such a gentle, soothing hand. Okay, when you make a cut or when you set the camera, you see like a beautiful frame, you see beautiful music. I mean you can make a wall, a brick wall, look elegant, okay? And that oh, is such, that's such a talent. And our bridge or, or empty street, that empty street in that town where that record shop is, I mean, it's just beautiful. I don't have that. I don't do that. I do the opposite. I, um, 
I make the cuts really, really rough and loud and abrupt and rude. And so we're, I think, both skilled filmmakers, but different styles. Oh, yeah, I think the, I think the style's different. I think there's a sensibility in your filmmaking, though, that I really sort of connect with, which is about... Um, like, there's a realness there, and it feels like it's not about stitching people up. Um, oh, it's no, about, no. It's about reflecting who people are, really. Like, I, well, I feel me, like I've... Yeah. Go ahead, hon. Well, I, I feel like I've spent my career sort of having uh like standing my ground and defending the people in my film so that they are able to be shown as they are so they'd recognize themselves and trying to think about well empathy. and you shouldn't have to fight for that because you know the camera doesn't lie they are who they are you know i will ask you this though maybe about your films if you don't mind sure Is, of course how how I don't mean to stir up anything, but do you go and get music clearances for all your work or do you just ignore yeah. that? Yeah, you everything's do? cleared. Oh, wow, yeah, that's I, a big job. Oh, it's a huge job. I mean, on Sound It How Out, did you do Elvis? Was, How did you do Elvis? That's crazy. We didn't use any Elvis music in the Orion film because he sounds so close to Elvis. Oh, my God. That's so it's, funny. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, he's so like Elvis. They did this like voice mapping thing and sort of, um, I think he matched Elvis's voice. Um, and if you ever yeah, hear Elvis, yeah, if you ever hear Elvis in, a, in an elevator now, you're probably listening to Orion. Uh, you Not know, sure. and Shelby Singleton releasing songs with a question mark on. It was all wow. Ryan. He sounded so vocally similar. So for a while, I I really struggled with the film in terms of legally how we were going to be able to make it. And like, should we include other songs? And it was like, we actually don't need to, because every single time Jimmy Ellis or Orion opens his mouth, you think you're listening to Elvis anyway. But I, I mean, do. I have... Yeah, well, there's there's the trick. I had some questions about how you made the um, the decline series because I mm-hmm. I just wonder how long did you um, the one that really spoke to me was the Metal Years, and I loved the way that you dealt with the fans in that uh, the mm-hmm. portraits of the fans, but also the the stars. It's quite interesting seeing you've got these like supernatural interviews, like getting Ozzy Osbourne. Is he making like fried eggs or a yes, fry up or something? <laughs> in all three of the decline movies, somebody fries eggs and makes breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Tell me about your approach to doing to doing the interviews with people. How long do you spend with them? And um, well, the reason I how... wanted, you know, the uh, see, I in, in the first decline, Darby Crash was not comfortable speaking in front of a camera, especially when he wasn't loaded, all right? So I thought it would be helpful for him to have something to do so um, he wasn't concentrating on the camera or being uncomfortable with the camera. And um, I called him and I said, I'm I'm coming over now, we're going to shoot. And he goes, can you bring some breakfast? And I said, "Uh, well, I'll bring something cook and that's just how it happened and then I had Ozzy cooking eggs in the second one and this guy named Eyeball that's in a band called The Resistance uh, cooking eggs in the third decline Um, but it's just a distraction to keep their mind off the camera and it actually works and it's pretty funny because none of them can cook 
Yeah, I really like that sort of distraction technique because it makes it makes the interviews feel intimate. It makes mm-hmm. you feel like you're really spending time with them rather than, mm-hmm. oh, hey, they've got three cameras set up here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it feels it, like it you're really help. with them. And, yeah, so it was more about it was more about that. I mean, and then I had to film Chris Holmes, and I figured. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask know, about that. Why not a swimming pool? I didn't know he would nearly drown, mind you. I mean, how loaded was he in that interview? Well, he was loaded, but he wasn't as loaded as, let's put it this way, I think he pretended to be more loaded than he actually was. Right. I mean, he's a performer, you know, and and, uh, he kind of just jacked up the stakes a little bit there. And he was drinking half of it. Uh, the beginning, it was vodka, and then um, he was filling up the bottle with uh, pool water and drinking that. Um, oh, okay. And when you sh- when you see the uh, the the, it was funny because my daughter Anna is the one that made me do the decline box set. But when you see that, she she was putting it together. She goes, "Mom, do you wanna do you wanna show that that you know Chris was actually pouring." pool water on his head and I'm like yeah I don't care that's what really happened I don't I don't want to you know lie uh I mean I lied the first time let's tell the truth now so there you go yeah I kept thinking about that Chris Holmes interview because it's sort of yeah it's just so striking they're like these beautiful like garish beautiful portraits of sort of over the topness of what happens when you really get absorbed in the scene or or a big star. Do you know what happened to any of the people that were in the film? Because there's all those people who are like emphatically saying, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to be famous. And it's in a time when being famous, I think was like a different, possibly a different thing. Just in terms of, like I remember I made the first film I made was about, it was called teen land. And it was about four teenagers that spent all their time in their bedrooms. And one of the girls used to say, I want to be famous for being famous. I want to see the band. And I oh, want to be famous. She, she wanted to be a Kardashian. <laughs> Great. Exactly. But this was sort of my space time. It was pre social mm-hmm. media. And mm-hmm. it seemed innocent watching these people sort of proclaiming that they want, they, I want to make it. I want to be famous. And just wondering what happened to them. And it's like, I don't yeah. even need to know, but. Well, fantasy of what might have happened. The bands, as you can see, the bands that played in the film are really the only one that is still, well, that's not true. I was going to say Megadeth is still playing, of course. Uh, London with Nader DePriest are still playing. He lives in in Vegas now. Um, That that band Seduce, I had to put them in the movie because uh, the producer uh, had just signed them, and they were they weren't even even from LA. I don't think they're together anymore. I don't know. Um, and what the hell other bands were in that movie? Uh, oh, <laughs> I know, right? So many movies, so many years, so many. Anyway, most, how many films have you made? How many films have I made? Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> I do know that if you go if you go on IMDb and you look at the list. It's a crack up because I didn't make some of those movies, you know, like there's one called the oh, really? Bob. Yeah, they did, you know, 
I say to my boyfriend, hey, and this guy's like a fucking genius when it comes to Internet and all that and computers. I go, hey, it says right here on the Internet that blah, blah, blah. And he goes, yeah, well, then it must be true. Ha. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> fact of the matter is it's generally, you know, not true. But, uh, yeah, there's shit on there that I didn't even do, you know. Um, wow. But I don't know how many <laughs> movies I've I've done and. And, and it doesn't really matter to me, you know what I mean? Like, and it doesn't matter if I ever make another movie, honestly. Um, I feel like, I feel very fortunate that I was able to make movies in a time when, um, you know, you could, you could make money doing it. Like, I, I made a shitload of money on, uh, on, on those comedies <laughs> that I didn't want to do. Uh, but after Wayne's World, that's all I could do was comedies, you know, so... Then they paid me millions of dollars to do uh, the Beverly Hillbillies or the Little Rascals or that, stuff like that, you know. Um, and I-, I was going to say it's a huge sort of shift in tone because I sort of I watched um, Suburbia. Uh, you know, I came to your work through the Decline series, and mm-hmm. then obviously Wayne's World. But watching um, Suburbia and then The Boys Next Door, and there's this sort of um, melancholy and darkness in the film exactly exactly and if i had not um just been given the gig to do wayne's world i would have continued to make films like suburbia not so much like the boys next door because it's too violent but like suburbia you know i would have done those kind of films and guess what i would have been dirt poor still because they don't make a lot of money, you know what I mean? Uh, well, maybe Manchester by the Sea is depressing, and it made some money. But um, <laughs> <laughs> back then, you know, a woman making statement films about squatter punks, not going to make any money, you know? But when I did Wayne's World, all of a sudden, I was in the Big Bucks League, and I couldn't get out of it, you know? So at one did point, you, I just kind of... Did you want to get out of it? At the time, no, because... I love making movies, and and I just kind of wanted to do whatever I could to keep making movies. And I swear to God, I mean, when I did Black Sheep, they said, here, we're going to give you $2 million salary, and I was stunned, and I just sat there silent, and I, they took that as meaning um, that I didn't like the number, so they said, okay, 275. Wow. <laughs> I know. So... Uh, Anyway, I I just, you know, I, I wanted to keep making movies, and somehow I, you know, I got to a point where then I did this movie, Senseless, and if, if you're a woman in this business and you have a movie that is not as successful as they wanted it to be, which was, which was with uh, Marlon Wayans and David Spade, then that movie didn't do as much business as the rest of them, then it's over with, okay? Like a guy in this business, a man in this business, can can make flop after flop after flop and still get a gig. Wow, and you think that women get less, just less of a go, less chance to make a mistake. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like you can't screw up. As, woman, as a woman in this business, you can't, like, get arrested for drunk driving or, you know what I mean, or getting a, yeah, yeah. a domestic dispute or anything. I mean, we've got directors that are the guys that, are, that just keep on making movies that have, 
you know, uh, crashed into walls because they were loaded, and then they just do the next movie. You know what I mean? It's not a big deal. Yeah. You can't do that if you're a woman. You got to be. A, you got to keep it all straight and narrow. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, I never, I never had any of those issues, so I'm really thankful. But um, yeah, when I when I did Senseless and it didn't do as much business as the other movies, then um, it, you know, it was with the Weinstein's, and I was like, I'm over this shit. You know, I don't care. And that was in the late '90s. What I've noticed is from my peers is men who make a you know, they make a successful doc, they immediately get sort of muted as, oh, you could be the next fiction director. And there's definitely a feeling that um, fiction is proper filmmaking in inverted commas, as opposed to documentary filmmaking. And Well, um, I think that that is becoming less and less so because, I mean, when I, when I did The Decline uh, in 1980, we couldn't get a theater. Everybody said, you can't show a documentary in a theater, okay? Oh, so, wow, okay. Especially, especially a documentary about punk rock. You can't show that in a theater. Um, well, now, and I think it came with Michael Moore's movies, documentaries are seen in theaters, you know. And um, I think there's a certain prestige that goes along with making documentary films. Um, I actually would have loved to have spent my life doing that instead of making um, studio goofball comedies. Um, but like I said, I probably would have been broke right now if I did that, you know? <laughs> what sort of docs do you think you would have carried on making? Oh, my gosh. I am extremely fascinated on so many. I, well, I mean, I would make documentary on, on toxic waste or, or mental health issues or uh, uh, domestic abuse issues or, I mean, all kinds of social problems that I think need to have light shed on them, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and, but now, I mean, I'm in the academy and the documentary branch, which I choose to be there because I don't want to be with all those men directors sitting around a table. I tried that. It sucks. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm in the documentary branch. And I mean, last year we got 140 documentaries to watch. Okay, so now... Everybody's doing documentaries, um, mm -hmm. which is great, you know. It's just hard to find the good ones. You know, you've got to watch like five minutes and decide if you want to go ahead and rest the, waste the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are so many films, so many films. I think as well because cameras are more accessible. You know, you can exactly. just go out and make your film. It just doesn't mean it will be any good. That's right. I mean, I think the biggest struggle with docs is finding the stories that sort of keep you sustained. I was mentored by Marshall Curry, the great uh, doc director, while I was making Orion. And he sort of said, like, every few minutes you need to be asking yourself, what happens next? And I mm -hmm. didn't know that. What happens next? How do you keep, you know, uh -huh. keep turning the screw and keep getting the story uh -huh. unfolding? Um, but, yeah, it's finding those stories that are really going to sustain sustain you. Yeah, um, it, it's not easy. I'm very interested in this sort of shift between, in your later work, the sort of comedy, but also like the nihilism. I mean, where did that go? I was sort of watching Little Rascals and I thought, oh, this isn't a dark movie at all. Apart from there's a cameo with the Donald. Uh, Donald Trump shows up. I was like, oh, my goodness, here's the darkness. In oh, in the, are you talking about in the Little Rascals? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What uh, we had, we had the Donald in the Little Rascals. Yeah, I know. Yeah, what was that like? What was it like uh, it working was fine. With I mean, I, I just got a call one day when we were shooting, and, you know, that was actually not really a part in there. It was just like, Baldo's dad is sitting in the stands, and somebody from, they call it the Black Tower, which is the executive office building at Universal. I got a call from the tower, and it says, how about Donald Trump for Waldo's dad? And I'm like, Donald Trump? Oh, yeah, yeah, some rich dude from New York. Oh, yeah, okay, it's fine. So then he, you know, he comes down to this, he pulls up right next to camera in a, in a big stretch limo and him and Marlo Maples get out and he does the scene and he drives away into the horizon, you know what I mean? Yeah. Wow. It was okay. He was Brief. a professional. Brief, uh. yeah. <laughs> and could you, could you imagine that um, it would have ended the, the way things have gone? No, I didn't know I was with the. I didn't know I was with the future president of the United States at that point. If somebody (laughs) would have said that to me, I would have rolled on the ground laughing. Uh, And I am still. (laughs) Anyway. But what happened? And when you were making those sort of goodies, where what was the sort of outlet for your darker sort of creative ideas? When I was doing the studio movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I think any. Any movie making is creative. Um, I mean, I mean the, more dark, I got, the darker sort of nihilism. I, I didn't. I didn't do them. You know, to me, the '90s were just a bunch of fluff. You know, and and until, uh, like I said, I ha- I did that one film that wasn't that successful. So, you know, here's the thing: everybody has a beginning, a middle, and an end in Hollywood, or with anything. You know what I mean? And for me, mm-hmm. the end of the '90s. Uh, was horrible. Uh, I I had a um, um, scripted film that didn't do well because Weinstein's rewrote the ending and screwed it up. And then I worked with Sharon and Ozzy on a film called We Sold Our Souls for Rock and Roll, which is a documentary about the Ozfest. I worked on it for three effing years, and it never got released because um, Sharon uh, said she had the music rights, but she didn't. And right. uh, so it was the end of the 90s for me were, was like, okay, I have enough of this Hollywood shit, you know? Yeah. And so then and what happened? Yeah. yeah. yeah so what fine. did you do like, after that? How did you come through that? I, I build houses. <laughs> what? What I mean, I still, I still make, I've got two documentaries in the works downstairs, you know what I mean? Like in the editing room, I've got. I've got. Oh, can you tell me about those? No, I can't. I I love you, but I can't because <laughs> <laughs> because um, well, you know, uh, uh, everyone's got an iPhone, Jeannie. You know that they can go out and make that movie. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, no, I'm super cautious about talking about the films that I'm yeah that aren't finished because I've had it before where people have started to make. I've had it when people started phoning my contributors for Orion saying, hey, we're making this film as well. Oh, my God. I know. They said, her film's not happening. Oh, it's cutthroat. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was really bad. They're like, her film is dead. You should talk to us. So I had to contact those people and tell them, yeah, my film's very much alive and uh, (laughs) it's it's going ahead. Even in the touchy-feely world of documentary, it's it's pretty tough. It has its tough moments. Well, listen, um, I've got a, an 8 o'clock call here in um, sunny Los Angeles. 
So I think I should get off the phone here pretty quick, but um, I hope that's okay. Oh, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. I'm such a fan, and it's so... Yeah, it's well, so wonderful to have some I'm a time. fan of yours, too, and I really appreciate your sending me the movies, and I think we should get them into some theaters over here in the, um, you know, United States. Oh, I'd love that. That would be perfect. Yeah, yeah. Well, could, get a booker and get those things booked over here. They're great. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, so, thanks right. for talking, and good luck with the uh, Wayne's World release. And I look forward to <laughs> yeah. your mystery documentaries when they come out. Well, I just want to say, Jeannie, party on, okay? Yeah, party, okay. party on, Penelope. Party on. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Bye. This is Nick Dawson from Talk Has Film, and you've been listening to Jeannie Finley and Penelope Spheris on the Talk Has Film podcast. This episode was engineered and edited by Mark Yoshizumi. TalkHouse podcast producer is Elliot Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit TalkHouse.com slash film. Subscribe to TalkHouse Film and TalkHouse Music Podcasts on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review as it helps others find the podcast. Wow, I'm stoked I got to speak to her. That's amazing. What a nice lady.